We are in the midst of a series called The Bible Doesn't Say That. And in this series, we've really been tackling some common sayings and beliefs and cliches that so often we hold up as scripture, but the reality is they really aren't scripture. And so far, we've looked at some sayings like, follow your heart, and God will never give you more than you can handle, and God just wants you to be happy, and everything happens for a reason. And while these sayings and cliches are certainly common and popular, the reality, as we've talked about, is that the Bible just doesn't say that. And the saying we're going to be addressing today and talking about today is another one that's very common. I'm sure all of us have heard it. It goes something like this. You shouldn't judge. You shouldn't judge. And in a lot of cases, let's just be honest, that is actually the truth. You shouldn't judge. But like a good coach or instructor will tell you, you can take one piece of instruction and completely overcompensate with it that you throw everything else out of balance. Just ask my golf swing if you need reference on that. But uh, in other words, as one person said, you can take one or two aspirin and it'll cure a headache, but if you take the whole bottle, it can kill you, right? And so we need to keep things in perspective. And today in our culture, judging others has developed into such a broad sweeping definition that it now includes virtually any attempt to address another's behavior of belief. And on the surface, I mean, it seems like this approach would ensure that everybody's freedom kind of is respected and, 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 and held up a little bit. But I believe, I believe that walking by our culture's definition of what it means to judge can actually do in the end much more harm than good. And at the heart of our culture's idea about what judgment is, is really an underlying assumption. And that assumption at work, in many cases, is that truth and morality are just all relative anyway. There's really nothing universally true. There's really nothing universally um, morally right and, and, and wrong. It's just whatever you want to do. Kind of a little bit off the, the heels of what we talked about. God just wants you to be happy and, and follow your heart. Those are the mantras of our culture. And so if I'm following my heart, then it's just whatever my heart wants and whatever I want to do. And that's what's right uh, and wrong. There's really nothing that's universally right or wrong. And so really you have no business judging someone else's beliefs or even another person's behavior. But can you imagine an engineer saying that his calculations don't really matter as long as they work for him. Probably wouldn't want to drive across any bridge that he builds or go into any buildings that he constructs. Or imagine your doctor giving you a number of prescriptions and just telling you to take whatever feels right to you. And that'll work. Maybe some of you have had that happen before. It's not usually a good plan, right? In every area of life where we evaluate outcomes, you know that some things work, and some things just don't. Some things are right and some answers are wrong. Some things are real and some things are not. Now, what's most interesting is that most everyone in our culture knows that Jesus talked about the subject of judging others. In fact, it's quite possible that the most well-known scripture in the Bible is not John 3.16, as it has been for years and years and years, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. 
but Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now the truth is that when most people quote that verse, they have no idea where it's found. They have no idea it's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And that can be problematic because knowing where it's found is important because that has everything to do with reading it in its context. And reading it in its context is important because that has everything to do with understand what, understanding what Jesus is trying to say. And I want to tell you up front, I'm, I'm sure this message and maybe others have as well. I, I always understand that, that any time I get up to preach the gospel... Uh, it has the ability to offend or to step on toes or anything like that. And this message certainly is no different. It has the potential to upset people on both sides of the extreme of the judge factor. And so I hope you listen close because I, I do believe Jesus said, do not judge. I mean, it's kind of hard to deny, right? He does say do not judge. But what I don't believe is that he meant what many people think it means when he said those words. So I just ask that you listen carefully and try not to judge me until the end of the message. So hopefully we can agree on that. Because here's the reality. When Jesus said, do not judge, there is no way he could have meant, do not make moral discernments. Okay? Because judgment calls have to be made. That, that, that's just the reality of life. Judgment calls have to be made. If by do not judge, Jesus was prohibiting all moral discernment, then Jesus didn't even take his own advice. I mean, people who say, well, Jesus never judged anyone. You need to go back and read the Gospels because it's chock full of judgment. Story after story, Jesus was constantly calling people out for bad theology, for poor attitudes, for unkind behaviors, for immoral actions. Jesus used, you ready for this? Jesus used the S word. There, I said it. Jesus used the S word. Now get your minds out of the gutter, okay? Jesus wasn't afraid to call sin, sin. He wasn't afraid to call people sinners. He used the S word a lot. He made judgment calls all the time, and he told his disciples to do the same thing. In fact, in the context of Matthew chapter 7, where do not judge is found, a few verses later, Jesus says this in verse 6, Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to, be, to pieces. You cannot do that without making a judgment call. And by the way, notice that he says that doing that has something to do with whether or not you get torn to pieces sometimes. So, so not only is it necessary, but it's, it's prudent. A few verses later in the same chapter, he says in verses 15 and 16 of Matthew chapter 7, Watch out for false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. You can't do that without making a moral discernment and a moral judgment. And the Bible is full of calls to do this over and over throughout the Gospels, throughout the letters of Paul and Peter and John. We're warned, don't engage in that kind of behavior. Don't fellowship with people who do things like that. The Bible is full of calls to recognize sin and evil, to name sin and evil, and to avoid sin and evil. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, 
woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And so listen, the Bible says it is wrong if you won't call something that is wrong, wrong. Let me say that again because that may have gotten confusing. There's a lot of wrongs in there. When you see something is wrong and you won't say it's wrong, the Bible says that is very wrong. But this message is not well received by a culture that feels like it's judgmental to impose any definition of right and wrong on anybody else. I probably shouldn't be taken aback at anything we see or read these days, but I was taken aback by an article. Uh, it's been a little bit since this article came out, but I, I found it recently, and it was written by a man by the name of Stephen Anderson. I don't know if he's a Christian. This was in like a professional education magazine, but he teaches philosophy at a college in Canada, and he had a senior class, and he was trying to get them to kind of to create like a moral baseline. Here's what we're working with here. What, what, how do we feel about this? And so he said, okay, I'm just going to tell a story that, that everyone's going to react to. And so here's the story he told. He told, told a story about a young girl named Aisha who was an Afghan, uh, Afghani teenager. She was forced into an abusive marriage with a Taliban fighter who abused her and kept her with his animals. That's how he treated her. When she tried to escape, and I'm, I'm trying to make this as, as non-descriptive um, as possible, the family caught her, and when they caught her, they mutilated her, hacked off her nose and her ears, and left her for dead. She was found by some American soldiers and taken to a hospital, and so this teacher showed the picture of this beautiful but tragically deformed girl to his class of senior philosophy students. And he was not prepared for their reaction. Let me just read to you what he said. He said, I, ex I had expected strong aversion, but that's not what I got. Instead, they became confused. They seemed not to know what to think. They spoke timorously, afraid to make any moral judgment at all. They were unwilling to criticize any situation originating in a different culture. They said, well, we might not like it, but maybe over there it's okay. Another said, it's just wrong to judge others' cultures. And I wondered, this is him speaking, I wondered how can kids who have been so thoroughly basted in the language of minority rights be so numb to a clear moral offense? But no matter how I prodded, they did not leave their non-judgmental position. And I left class shaking my head. It seemed clear to me that for some of these students, the lesson of character education is acceptance of all things at all costs. It's evident that a good many believe the overriding message is you never judge, you never criticize. You never take a position. So let me ask you, is that what Jesus meant when he said, do not judge? There's a Christian philosopher by the name of J.P. Moreland who used to go to college campuses and speak to young men uh, in particular uh, about Jesus. And he talked about one time where he went to the University of, of Vermont to talk to some uh, men in a dorm room about the Christian faith and one of the students who was listening just kept repeating the the, the, the mantra of, of our day and age that goes something like well that might be right for you and, and it, that's good if it works for you but you don't have any right to expect or to force uh, anyone else to believe that that's right for them and so Moreland said okay and as he 
finished up speaking and he was leaving the room, he unplugged the student's stereo, because this was a little bit a while ago, so they still had stereos instead of, you know, so he unplugged the student's stereo, picked it up, and started out the door with it. And the student said, hey, 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 what are you doing? You, you can't take my stereo. You can't do that. To which Moreland said, well, you're not going to force on me the belief that it's wrong to steal your stereo, are you? And then he went on to point out to that student that so many today are what he calls moral, selective moral relatives. In other words, they say there's no right and wrong. There's really no right and wrong. There's really no truth. That truth and morality are just relative. But you take their things, you violate or infringe on their rights, and suddenly they have a very strong sense of what is right and what is wrong. By the way, several weeks later, that young man ended up giving his life to Jesus Christ because he said if there are moral, uh, if there are you know, truly moral rights and wrongs, then I need to go to the one who is the ultimate law and moral giver. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And Moreland suggested that we start after his conversation and interaction with that young man, suggested that we start a new evangelistic method called stealing stereos for Jesus. I don't know. It hasn't really caught on. <laughs> hasn't really caught on too well, but, but here's the reality, okay? Everybody makes judgment calls. And those who say we shouldn't change their mind really quickly when someone does something to them that they think is wrong. Every single one of us, every single person makes judgment calls all the time. And Jesus didn't forbid it. He's not forbidding judgment, but he is expecting discernment because judgment calls for the mind and the spirit of Christ. Judgment calls for the mind and the spirit of Christ. Jesus was very anti-sin, and his practice of tolerance never accepted people where they were to the exclusion of of calling people to where God wanted them to be. You've heard me say this time and time again. God loves you right where you are. But he loves you too much to let you stay that way. God accepts you just the way you are. But he calls you to something better. To something bigger. To a new way of life and thinking and acting. And I know we like to say things like, well, we just need to be tolerant. But, you know, you really ought to take a look at how the Bible uses that word tolerant and the context in which we find it. Because Jesus is intolerant of tolerating sin. Just to give you one example, he said to a church in Revelation, in Revelation 2, verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate this woman, Jezebel, that leads my people into sexual immorality. And so Jesus is very anti-sin. But Jesus is very pro-people to the, to the degree that he's often labeled. One of the labels of Jesus is that he is a friend of sinners. And the Pharisees tried to use that in a negative way, but Jesus didn't take that. He, he was. He was a friend of sinners. And that is the tension. It's easy to hate sin and be condemned. It's easy to hate sin and be condemning. But you know what? It's also easy to be non-judgmental and just ignore sin. It's easy to be on those two extremes. But Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, 
models a better way. And I think one of the most perfect illustrations of this is in a story that we find in John chapter 8. Many of you are probably familiar with this story. There's a woman who's caught in adultery. And she's brought before Jesus by the Pharisees. And, and they say to him, we've caught this woman in adultery. Should we stone her or not? Because you know what the law says. The law says we should stone her. And so Jesus says, yeah, you're right. That's what it says. And if none of you have ever broken the law, then you can pick up the first stone and throw it at her. Well, of course, none of them were perfect. All of them had broken the law. And so one by one, all of them left until only the woman is left with Jesus. And he says to her, well, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all left. And then listen to what Jesus says. This is so brilliant. John chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. And listen to what he says. Go and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. I love you just the way you are. <clears throat> but I'm calling you to something better. Go and leave your life of sin. Because you see, it is possible to judge without condemning. It is possible to name sin and be named a friend of sinners. And so when we hear Jesus say, do not judge, we need to hear him in light of all that he said and did in the Gospels. For example, we need to hear what he said in John chapter 7, verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances. In other words, don't judge rashly. Don't judge shallowly. Don't be a superficial measure of people. But instead, judge correctly. Use some discernment. In other words, judge well. And that's tough, right? I mean, that, that is the tension. That is the tough part. Because as I said, it's easy to be a person that hates sin and condemns. And it's easy to say, well, I'm just going to ignore sin and I'm going to never judge anybody and never, just, you know, ne never, never call sin what it is. But the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is to name sin. And to be named a friend of sinners. So how do you do that? Well, it's not easy, but here we go. If we're going to judge well, first we have to stay with Scripture. I probably could just leave it at that. I mean, but we'll expound a little bit for the sake of kind of digging in a little bit more. Stay with Scripture. You know, too many Christians have way too much to say, myself included at times, about issues that the Bible says nothing about. And what happens is that so much of our judging is based on cultural preferences and personal preferences instead of scriptural principles. And so here's a simple principle. If the word doesn't bring it up, then don't bring it up. If you can't back it up with scripture, then you need to back up. Now, if someone asks your opinion, then you can give it. But if it's not in the word of God, then we need to use some discernment on where we speak and where we don't speak. But we must speak up when wrong, according to the Bible, is held up as right. When wrong is held up as right, we need to speak where the Bible says this is wrong. You have stories in the Bible of people like Nathan who went to King David and said it was wrong for you to take another man's wife. That was wrong. We have stories in the Bible like John the Baptist who stood before Herod and said it's unlawful. It is a violation of God's 
word for you to take your brother's wife. Yeah, Paul going to Peter, conf uh, confronting him, saying it's wrong for you to continue to create a culture where racism can exist in the church by ignoring fellowship with Gentiles when Jews are present. That's wrong. And listen, there's no doubt that we live in a culture that is living out the words of Isaiah that I read earlier. Calling good evil and evil good. Just look around. Just look around. And while we're not called to judge, we are called to tell what the judge has said. We are called to tell what he has told us is true and right. And I think oftentimes Christians are labeled, when they are labeled as judgmental, what we're simply doing is identifying behaviors that the Bible says are wrong. But God's word stands true, church. Amen. God's word stands true. Amen. Because here's the reality. Whether you like something or not doesn't keep it from being true. Whether it's popular or not, whether it's endorsed by the masses or not, whether the opinion polls decide it or not, that does not matter. If it's God's word, it is true. And I'm not anybody's judge, but I must be a herald for the one who is. And I know this is a hard word. I know it's hard to process all this because of what we hear in our culture, but everybody just... Take a deep breath, okay? Because we're not done yet. So if we're going to judge well, we must stay with Scripture, but let's just keep going. Because if we're going to judge well, secondly, it's a little harder. We need to start with ourselves. We need to stay with Scripture, and we need to start with ourselves. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It's my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 8. The very first verse says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says that in the Word. But there is correction. And it must begin with a humble and thorough self-assessment. Go back to Jesus' words, do not judge. They're in the broader context, or in the context of a broader sermon, where Jesus is constantly confronting religious Hypocrisy. In chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, You say you've never murdered, but you have hate in your heart. You say you've never committed adultery, but you have lust in your heart. Chapter 6, he says, The way you give, the way you fast, the way you pray, you're calling attention to yourself. It's more about you than giving and praying and fasting and giving thanks to God. All throughout the sermon, he's confronting religious hypocrisy. And then, right after he says, Do not judge, he says this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, here's the reality. As disciples of Jesus, we lose credibility to preach to others what we ourselves are not practicing and living. If you're not living it, how can you preach it to others? Maybe you've heard the story back in the days of Prohibition. Preacher Manny, he, he had the church fired up. He said, if I had all the beer in the world, I'd just take it and go dump it in the river. If I had all the, the, the you know, wine in the world, I'd just go take it and dump that in the river too. And all the churches, they're... 
you're getting fired up and they're clapping, shouting amen. He said, if I had all the whiskey and the rum in the world, I'd just take it and dump it in the river. And church, whole church stood up, started clapping, shouting amen. And the song leader got up and sang a closing song, Shall We Gather at the River? <laughs> and that's part of our problem. We're not always living what we're preaching. And so understand, Jesus is very anti-sin. And he advocated taking radical steps to deal with sin. In this same sermon, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Yeah, seriously, it's in there. If your hand causes, I'm going to get even better, Jackson. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, obviously, he's speaking in hyperbole there, right? Those are radical metaphors, but they're radical metaphors making a radical and serious point. You and I need to deal with sin. We need to deal with sin. But Jesus never called anybody to repent on behalf of somebody else. We've all heard the line, love the sinner, hate the sin. You heard that line? I got a better line for you. I didn't come up with this. I heard it. Uh, but I got a better line for you that I think is more in line with Scripture. Love the sinner. Hate your own sin. Love the sinner. Hate your own sin. Start with yourself and hate your own sin. We, we tend to hate other people's sin a lot more than we hate our own. But start with yourself and hate your own sin. That's more in line with what Scripture says. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, this will get you. I bet you, some of you have probably never read this before. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Listen, it should not shock us that sinners sin. It should not shock us that people who don't follow God are ungodly. What should shock us is how much we tolerate so much impurity and sinfulness in the house of God while we shout over the walls about how sinful everybody else in the world is. Jesus said you need to put the brakes on calling out the sins of others when your own sin isn't breaking your heart. Because here's what happens. The further removed we are from the days when we were a prodigal, the easier it is to start acting like the elder brother. That's why if we're going to judge well, stick with scripture, start with yourself, and then lastly, stick with mercy. Stick with mercy. Just look at the very next sentence that Jesus says after... Do not judge. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you used, it will be measured to you. Church, we must not let being anti-sin trump being pro-people. And if the way we name sin keeps us from being named friends of sinners, something is very wrong. Because we need too much grace ourselves to live that way. James, the brother of Jesus, put it like this in James chapter 2, verse 13. Judgment without mercy 
will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And listen, it's a tension we all live with, but when we are in doubt, we need to lead with mercy. It doesn't mean we lead, leave truth behind, but we lead with mercy. And by the way, that includes the way we receive judgment calls. The way we receive correction in our own lives. Do you know what David did when, when, when Nathan called him out? When Nathan said, you were wrong, you know what David did? He didn't say, don't judge me. You know what he did? He repented. He said, I was wrong. And later, he actually named one of his sons after Nathan. In the family of God, there should be a culture and a community where we can be calling each other to the best that Jesus has to offer us. Where we can have real conversations, where it's not the superficial stuff, but real deep stuff. And we, where we don't avoid the deep and tough conversations as a, say to say, as a way to say, well, eh, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Because what some people might call being judgmental might just be risky love. It might be somebody loving you enough to not let you go down a path. That leads you away from God. We need to be grateful for the Nathans in our lives. Those people who love us enough to be our friend and to name our sin. And by the way, we need to be especially grateful that God would not ignore our sin. Because you see, if God ignored our sin, we would all get help. But God is so anti-sin that he sent his son to a cross. And God is so pro-people that the judge took the judgment on himself. So make judgment calls. God's not telling you not to make judgment calls. They, they have to be made. So make them, but not with the plank in your eye. Make them with the cross in your eye. And let's be judged for loving people the way the judge loved us.